Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Knife to Skin podcast. Today, we're going to do an episode on uh, how to read a paper. And uh, I'm very pleased to have Mr. Rahul Bohm, who's one of our registrars with us uh, to talk about this. Rahul's a trainee, but also an NIHR researcher. And I'm going to get him to introduce himself. And then we'll talk about how to go about reading academic papers. So Rahul, uh, could you please tell us who you are and what your designation is? Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Taka. It's a pleasure to be part of the uh, Knife to Skin podcast series, uh, which I think is a brilliant opportunity for us as well as the um, the learners out there. Um, as you said very kindly, I am a clinical lecturer here in Southampton. Uh, my clinical specialty is general surgery, and uh, my academic interest is the tumour microenvironment and colorectal cancer in particular. Um, as part of my current role, I spend 50% of my time as a specialty trainee um, in the hospital um, and I spend 50% of my time doing academic activity and the majority of that is uh, basic science um, and in particular cell signalling, tumour microenvironment and micrometastatic spread to the liver of colorectal cancer after surgery is my interest. Ultimately, I'd like to uh, be a colorectal cancer surgeon as well as leading a team of researchers uh, investigating cellular mechanisms be behind colorectal cancer recurrence. Okay, so uh, that sounds very impressive, I have to say. But could you just explain, Rule, that this is not what every surgical trainee is doing in the region or in the country? Uh, I, I think if I've got this right, there's very few of you across the country. So what's the difference between you, who is uh, who has an academic interest and also has a research interest and a regular uh, you know, sort of surgical registrar? Well, as you know, um, general surgery in particular has very close links with academia. And actually going back, lots of general surgery registrars do a period of formal research. But you're absolutely correct. There's not many general surgical trainees doing postdoctoral research. The thing which drew me to... Uh, academia is the the big picture is that there is a chance however small to influence health on a very large scale with that particular finding that you make which in combination with other people's work over the course of the next few decades may make a difference to millions of people rather than the 40 or 50 um, cancer operations that you might be able to achieve every year during your surgical career. Um, so that's probably the, the, the main reason why uh, I pursue the, the research that I do. There's also a little bit more freedom and autonomy to express yourself and your creativity and imagination. Uh, that I may have an idea uh, about an experiment that I want to do and I can enact that in the next week to test my hypothesis. Whereas it's a little bit more d difficult to do that uh, in, in other aspects of your, of your career. Okay, so so that's interesting, and I'm, I'm I am going to uh, come back to this towards the end of the episode, just because uh, I think it would be worth our while to help the listeners who are hopefully uh, some medical students and FY ones also, but CT trainees uh, learn how they can go about uh, getting a post like yours if they were interested in that. So we'll do that towards the end. But coming back to the topics that we discussed. Uh, why do you think um, the skill of reading academic papers is important for medical students and, and junior doctors alike? 
Well, the thing about papers are that they have gone through a peer review process. So I think, first of all, uh, it means that published work has gone through this rigorous process whereby field experts have gone through the data and have rubber stamped it and approved it. Um, now there's different levels of publication and different quality of publication, but the expectation is that all published work has gone through that process. This is up-to-date, absolute contemporary information, and it's the one of the main sources of the latest information in a particular field, whether that's basic research uh, or clinical trials. Um, and as you know, uh, papers will influence health policy. And if you look at the latest um, National, Institute, National Institute for Clinical Excellence recommendations, um, most, if not all, of recommendations will be based upon published data. Um, and finally, we have a professional obligation to be able to discuss with our patient the risks, benefits and alternatives to treatment and reading uh, up-to-date publications will give us the opportunity to have that knowledge. Okay, so if I get this straight, there's sort of a couple of strands to why we all in the medical sphere need to be up-to-date with the academic literature. Uh, one is, as you say, from a macroeconomic point of view, that uh, if there is published literature in terms of certain techniques or tests or uh, types of treatment where there are big studies which show that there's a, an obvious benefit. So that's one side of it. And the other side is, as a surgeon, I guess, it would be that um, there are people across the world who are trying new techniques, new instruments, uh, new ways of doing the same operation with hopefully better results. And uh, that can potentially benefit our own patients. And as you say, the final thing, which is probably the most important bit, that when you're having that discussion with your patient, you can actually give them a very good idea of the alternatives available to them in terms of their treatment. So it is really uh, quite important in pretty much any sphere of medicine, so any specialty that you're up to date with the latest literature. Okay, so you talked about levels of evidence. What do you mean by that? Well, there's different types of papers uh, and the easiest way to summarize the different types is to think about different levels of evidence. So level one evidence is systematic reviews of randomized control trials or randomized control trials themselves. A randomized control trial is a prospective trial where patients are randomized to receive uh, either an intervention uh, or the, and in the other group, they receive standard of care or a placebo or no treatment. And the outcome of interest, whether that's a cure, for example, or a period of disease-free survival, is measured in each of the groups. Systematic reviews include lots of different studies which ask the same question and they combine the findings from the different studies. And meta-analyses is the numerical part of that, is combining the data from these multiple studies. So that's the difference between systematic reviews, RCTs, and the meta-analyses themselves. And, and all of these are considered to be level one uh, evidence. Now, within level one, there will be subgroups, level 1A, level 1B, and you can go away and think about what those are, and that information is available as well. Um, level two would be other prospective studies, and the typical example would be a cohort study where uh, 
you can think of this as looking forward and seeing what happens. Uh, groups of patients with and without a particular variable or treatment of interest are monitored over a period of time and the frequency of a particular outcome is measured in each of those two groups. Level three evidence uh, is our, our retrospective studies and you can think of this as looking back and seeing what made things happen uh, and for example patients who had and did not have a particular outcome and that might be cancer recurrence for example and it's all about tracking back and seeing what 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 the causes may have been. Level four evidence uh, includes case series and case reports and these include small numbers of people, uh, patients uh, who have been treated usually at a single centre and it's use useful for us to see uh, innovation very early on and feasibility where new techniques have been employed for the first time. And then level five evidence will be um, expert opinion which is in the form of narrative reviews or consensus statements from particular um, learned bodies. Um, and below that uh, will be preclinical studies, animal studies and laboratory studies. But in truth, if you wanted irrefutable evidence or so-called highest level of evidence for the efficacy of a treatment or a technique, you really want to be looking at level one, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. So these will be prospective randomised control trials uh, on a large scale and ideally uh, systematic review with meta-analysis combining lots of these RCTs. Okay, so in truth, um, that is what you're hopefully aiming for in terms of a gold standard is you want to look at a randomised control trial where uh, you have a, a good level of evidence, a high degree of significance that a treatment is better than a placebo or another treatment. Okay, so that's what you would want to be looking at. and th Those are the types of papers that you would be looking at. Now, you have, uh, you know, you're an FY1. Um, you're quite interested in a supposedly academic career in surgery, but you're not really well versed in going through a paper. So could you take us through a paper that you have in front of you and how would you go about getting the maximum level of information from that but also how would that um, in fact inform your already existing body of knowledge? Yeah, I think that's a really important critical appraisal of papers uh, is uh, acknowledged to be more and more important and forms part of the curriculum of a lot of medical schools nowadays um, and I think that's right the first thing that I would look at as a resource is the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine checklists and toolkits, um, and that's from University of Oxford, and I think they're excellent. Um, what I do is look at the provenance of the source, first of all, uh, you know, just as you would if you're a historian. Um, what is the journal? Who are the authors? And what institution has this piece of work come from? Uh, and that will give you a great deal of information before you even start. The next uh, is a title, and it sounds a little bit trivial, but the title should tell you exactly what type of study it is and what research question the authors are trying to answer. So from the title, you should be able to tell, is this a randomised control trial or a cohort study or a case control study, etc., etc., and what is, the, what is the question that they're asking? So already you're getting a bit of an idea of what level of evidence that paper might be Absolutely. providing, is that right? Straight away, yeah. So just as a little aside here, and again, it's something that uh, so people in, in academia get uh, very het up about, I guess, and uh, 
uh, where the measure of someone as a researcher is looked at is uh, impact factor. Could you just explain what that means, Rahul, in terms of uh, what does that mean in relation to a journal? Yep. Um, so very simply, the impact factor is calculated by looking at um, the number of citations that all papers in the journal have had in the previous two years divided by the number of papers in total. Now, impact factor ranges from journals which are yet to get an impact factor, so that'll be zero, to the New England Journal of Medicine, which has an impact factor over 60. Um, and usually, um, where randomized control trials are published, uh, journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, these journals will have the highest impact factors. In terms of basic science, uh, Nature and Cell are two journals which have impact factors over 30, for example. Um, more and more in the academic field, we're trying to move away from impact factors, but I don't think at the moment there's a better metric and I think people will continue to use impact factor for a long time as much as we try to get away from it. So in to put it into simplistic terms, uh, most people in academia are trying to publish work in the highest impact factor journal that they possibly can. Absolutely. Okay. There's also a ResearchGate index. Could you explain that as well? Well, um, I am on ResearchGate and I have a ResearchGate index uh, and I'm very proud of it. But actually how that's calculated, I'm not really sure, Mr. Tucker. Okay. Um, so it'd be interesting to to see how that is calculated. Uh, but so, um, so my understanding of the ResearchGate index was that how many times you get cited, uh, but in a sort of a LinkedIn type fashion is what my understanding is. But Again, I think there's lots of people trying their best to could be very high up on the ResearchGate index. Yeah, I think uh, traditionally it's the H index that's very popular, and um, especially uh, across the Atlantic, um, H indexes of uh, above fifteen uh, qualify people to apply for professorship. I think so. Uh, that's traditionally what people have used, and that's okay. based on number of articles you've published and number of right. citations as well. Fine. Okay, so going back to Looking at the papers, you've been past the title. You've probably got a few clues as to what level of evidence you're looking at, because as you say, most uh, most papers uh, will say whether they're a randomized control trial or a case control study, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you look at next? Well, next is the abstract. And you can glean so much information from the abstract, because this should give you a summary of the entire paper. Um, now, the abstract can be free text, but more and more often now it's broken down into introduction, methods, results, and a conclusion. Um, and so, again, you should be able to confirm the type of study, the question that the authors are asking, the methodology, and then the important findings and how that relates to the clinical context. Um, after you've had a look at the abstract, um, stepwise fashion through the introduction methods results and so on and so on uh, but I, I would suggest something different to that I would suggest um, looking at the introduction for the main objectives which should be included and then I would look at the results section next so I would do something slightly different to what's conventional and the results section um, they'll be the key figure of interest or the table of interest there 
Um, and after that, you'd want to look at the conclusion to see how this all fits in with the clinical context. And then I would go back to look in more detail at the technical elements of the paper in terms of the methodology uh, and other results, for example, secondary outcomes. Um, so going back, the introduction should just set the scene and should be really brief. Um, but the objectives, as I said, are the key. In terms of methods, if you're thinking about clinical studies and randomized controlled trials, the important things would be the inclusion and exclusion criteria, how the patients were randomized, um, whether there's an intention to treat analysis. And that means that uh, patients, regardless of how they were eventually treated, they are considered to have, to have had the treatment to which they were randomized to have initially. And that's really important. Uh, whether the pay, whether the study was um, whether the patients and the investigators were blinded, so um, the patients didn't know which treatment they were having, and the investigators didn't know which treatment the patients were having, and this is to reduce observer and reporter bias. Um, in terms of the results, as I said, there's the primary outcome, which is the main outcome, but there may be secondary outcomes, and you should also look at look at the dropout rate. So usually, this is expected to be. Uh, less than 20% of patients dropping out of the study during the study period. Um, and then in, the, in terms of discussion, how do you put this all together in the clinical context? How does it influence your cohort of patients that you treat on a daily basis and how you can apply this new data to your, uh, your patients, I think, is the most important thing. So I, so I must say my technique is um, not dissimilar to yours, Rahul, that I... I look at the abstract. Uh, I, uh, uh, you know, look at the title, of course, but I almost uh, go straight to the discussion from there uh, because that uh, will give me an idea of whether I really want to continue interrogating the paper, uh, sort of as it were. Because if there's a lot of interesting things in the discussion which may be relevant to my practice, I will then go back and look. Like, is this genuinely, um, basically, telling us? what it says it's telling us because actually one of the things that i find with with papers is and having been uh you know having done some research myself is that frequently um uh, you're not entirely convinced by the initial impression the paper might give to the information being provided in the more detail or in the substance of it okay uh, so uh, can you sort of and then just talk us through your process as to what you do next after that in terms of looking at the results themselves, yes. did you say? Yeah. yeah. So um, in terms of looking at the results themselves, I think um, the key things, I think we should consider that we're looking at a randomized control trial. And I think the next thing is to have an understanding of basic statistics and basic um, ability to break down the results. So I'll give you an example, for example. Yeah. Uh, so there's a new targeted treatment to prevent recurrence uh, of colorectal cancer. Group A had the new treatment. Group B had the standard of care treatment. Um, the outcome, the primary outcome here is cancer recurrence at five years. In group A, 16 patients out of 100 got recurrence at five years. And in group B, 32 patients out of 100 got recurrence. Okay, so 16% in group A, 32% in group B. So the first thing would be to look at the relative risk. So that's quite simply calculated by the frequency of outcome in group A divided by the, by the frequency of the outcome in group B. So in our case, it would be 16 divided by 32 it would be 
okay, or 0.5. Yeah. Um, the next thing to work out would be the absolute risk reduction. And this is simply the frequency of the outcome in group A take away the frequency of the outcome in group B. So you can do it either way. You can do 16 minus 32 and you get minus 16 or 32 minus 16 and you get 16. So that's absolute risk reduction of 16%. Now from this, you can then work out the number needed to treat. And the number needed to treat is uh, 100 divided by the absolute risk reduction. So that would be 100 divided by 16, which gives you 6.25. And that number is the number of patients that you need to treat with this new treatment to prevent one cancer recurrence. Okay. Okay, so that would be six in this case. So there's no getting away from the fact that, well, I guess, you know, this is a podcast aimed at medical students, junior doctors, core trainees, etc. So there's really no getting away from the fact that there is a basic knowledge of statistics that is required to re really get the most benefit possible from uh, uh, reading a paper. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I said, relative risk, absolute risk reduction, number needed to treat, confidence intervals, which, you know, I, I didn't touch on, but you should have a basic, in, you know, understanding that confidence intervals are usually uh, the interval two standard deviations from the mean. And, you know, there's a 95% chance that the true mean lies within that confidence interval. And if confidence interval, if confidence intervals overlap, then that, that means that there's no significant difference between between the two groups, basically. So I think that's the other thing to know. And and beyond that, a basic understanding of what are p-values. And p-values, if you think about it in real simple terms, it's just that the probability that the outcome that, that you've measured is occurring by random chance. And so we set the p-value threshold usually to 0 0.05, meaning that the results that you see uh, if the p-value is less than 0 0.05, means that there's less than 5% chance that the, the results have been uh, have occurred due to random chance. So I think that's important to note as well. Any tips on, uh, especially for the students, can they get some handy text that might help them read up and uh, learn about this stuff in a slightly coherent manner? Well, I think actually there's a series of small articles uh, in the BMJ about all of these kind of things. Um, and as I said before, uh, in terms of critical appraisal, the toolkit from the uh, University of Oxford Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine, uh, they're freely available uh, as PDFs. And I think that would be a really good place to start when you're reading randomised control trials, just to go through that checklist while you're doing it would be a great, great thing uh, when you're starting off. So that's very helpful, Rahul, because in fact, we'll put the links to those uh, in the in the show notes. Now, one of the, the good things about the BMJ is, uh, and for those of you who read it, is that there's a really um, interesting bit at the bottom of whenever they are talking about papers is that what this paper tells us or what this paper teaches us, which I find really useful because it's, again, uh, a little indicator that uh, that this might be something that I may need to read. And uh, so in, in about, a, I think they do it via like three or four sentences where they try and explain what this paper is trying to say and, and what the what the potential results are saying, et cetera, et cetera. Which again, I think um, for the students, it's worth going through the student BMJ because they have uh, good summaries on papers. But also uh, if you guys, uh, for those of you who are qualified and do get the BMJ, it is worth just going through it just to look at the fact that they do present 
some of the important studies being published there with uh, with these really nice summaries, which will give you a good idea about whether you think you might want to read the paper or not. So going on to the next bit, bit Rahul, um, how do you think, so, you know, the world of medical literature is sort of infinite, isn't it? You look at PubMed and literally there's millions and millions of articles and papers. How do you go about, and actually, e- even if you've honed yourself down to a small field, uh, and in my case, uh, you know, this is hepatopancreatic biliary surgery, uh, if you simply did a search in PubMed for HBB, uh, you'll basically get thousands of hits. So do you have a workflow or a methodology by which someone like you, you know, you're still actively in research, you need to be up to date with most of the things happening in, for example, you know, sort of rival labs, how do you try and make sense of this sort of torrent of information that is out there? Well, I think it's interesting. And as time has gone on, social media has become more and more part of academia. So the bigger labs will tend to tweet out about findings that they want you to know about. And they may not tweet about the things that they don't want you to know about. (laughs) But um, a lot of information is... um, available through Twitter and uh, people um, putting up links to their talks, uh, links to their abstracts. Um, And in the good old days, I think going to meetings was so important because that was the only place to get information on unpublished data. Um, But now uh, lots of presentations, especially in the COVID era, lots of presentations will be available um, online. And I think that's where you will have the most access to unpublished data, which will give you clues as to what is coming out from various different groups. Um, And the main reason that you want to do that is not to scoop anyone else, but actually to build up your collaborations with other people in the field if they allow you to do so. Um, And and that's the main reason why, you know, I would would be um, following particular labs on Twitter, for example. Uh, Other things... Um, simple uh, things to do is if you sign up to a journal or a society, for example, uh, or the Royal College even, uh, the Royal College Bulletin will have summaries of the latest papers which are relevant to colorectal surgeons or HPB surgeons or breast surgeons or uh, orthopedic surgeons. And uh, they will have a summary every month that comes to your email inbox. And there's also a, a paper version of that. And that will guide you towards the latest, paper, latest papers, which you may want to go and look up through Medline. Um, and then there are other things like pub crawler, which um, are quite nice because you put your keywords into pub crawler, and then um, every so often uh, you will receive an email with updates in terms of specific papers on microvesicles or tumor microenvironment or um, liver resection or whatever else it might be that you're particularly interested in. Um, so I think those are the, the, the main main ways that I would focus my my uh, my selection of papers. But you're right, there's so much stuff out there at the moment. It's difficult to know uh, what where to get the right information. So so similarly, uh, you know, when I was doing research and uh, up until in fact uh, whilst I was a, a young consultant um, with not so many responsibilities, one of the things about Pub Crawler was that. Uh, so it's worth, for those of you who are interested, it's worth going to their website. They run out of a university in Ireland, I think. Uh, and uh, it's a very customizable 
very basic setup, but as Rahul said, you can actually set it up. So so the way I had set it up was that I, I would get an email once a week on a Sunday night, uh, and I'd set it up that uh, uh, Pubcrawler would send me all the papers related to liver resection, pancreatic cancer with specific keywords. And so I'd normally get about uh, like 40 or 50 hits on papers that had been published the previous week. And then I would, uh, on a Monday or on that Sunday night, uh, sort of, you know, depending on how sad my life was that week, I would uh, would then uh, uh, go through and see whether any of those were particularly sort of relevant to me, and then specifically look up a couple of those papers. Uh, so so Pubcrawl is definitely something that's worth uh, looking at, and we will put a link into the show notes just in case you can you can really mess around with it and, and sort of customize it to your heart's content. I think but, I yeah. saw a slogan on there saying that it, Pubcrawler does the hard work so you can go to the pub. Yeah, well, there Something you go. Like well, it must be from Ireland then in that case. <laughs> um, okay, so, so that's fantastic. That's a really nice summary. And I think you've put uh, you put forward a really good case for why, for all of us, it's really quite important to stay up to date with the, with the medical literature, uh, especially specific to our fields, how to go about it, and potentially uh, what you should be doing in terms of strategies if you are uh, of, the, uh, of an academic nature. Uh, so just so that we're clear and so that the trainees, especially the younger trainees, who might be potentially thinking about a career in academic surgery. Now, just because I want to play sort of devil's advocate and I want to know what, you, what you're going to say. Um, so as you know, surgery is a profession uh, which is effectively like an apprenticeship. Uh, the more you practice, the better you get. So... In your case, you've actually got two competing interests. You're a sur, you know, you are well. You're going to be a consultant surgeon, uh, who will be doing potentially complex uh, bowel cancer work, but also you're a researcher. How do you make both those masters happy, uh, and and is it genuinely possible to do that? And have you got any thoughts of how you would go about it? Well, I think. Uh... The, the only way to make it possible is to have the protected time uh, in your clinical schedule to do formal research. I don't think it's possible to do research on a haphazard basis out of hours. I think that's the first thing to say. Um, I think since the Warport report, I think in 2006, uh, there are dedicated posts starting at foundation level straight out of medical school uh, moving on to the academic clinical fellowships um, and then clinical lectureships which are providing protected time to academic trainees to really encourage them to um, undertake high quality research and so there's not a pressure to try to juggle around uh, clinical skills with academic skills um, and doing 100% of both, uh, you know, nowadays, I think there is possible, you know, I can truly say that I do 50% of one, 50% of the other, rather than my predecess predecessors who are having to do lots of stuff outside of hours and really struggling. And that's, I think, something that put a lot of surgical trainees off research in the past. And so I think the system has made it easier for us to um, try to uh, develop our academic um career uh, on the other hand um, we are still expected to to have to achieve surgical competencies at the same rate as our full-time clinical colleagues but 
there is a little bit of flexibility in terms of training and with training program direct directors uh, who are sympathetic there's the opportunity to focus your training in particular areas where you might need uh, and also the opportunity to extend your training if if necessary so um, I think it is definitely possible but the training you'd expect it to be slightly longer and you'd need supportive consultants and supportive training program directors to tailor make your training um, and you know, you need to build relationships to allow that to happen. It won't just happen automatically, I don't think. So potentially you will uh, take longer than a colleague who started out in just being a trainee surgeon as opposed to yourself who have an academic interest and are doing surgery. Is that right? Yeah, so I, th I think that's absolutely right. I think, as we said before, uh, there's a close link between general surgery and doing PhDs and MDs in the past. So many of my colleagues would have done a PhD anyway, even if they're not formal academic trainees. But on top of that, the, uh, the thing I've done slightly differently is I went to the Francis Crick Institute for a year as a, a science postdoc. Uh, and that's something that certainly added a year uh, to my, my training. And I'm open to the possibility that uh, towards the last couple of years of my training, I may need to extend my training by a further six months or a year. And I think you have to be ready to accept that if you're willing to go for an academic career and not um, not let time be a barrier for you. If you're one of those people that wants to achieve things by a certain age, then I think that uh, it may not be the right thing for you. So this is just uh, as an aside and, and as a word of advice to people thinking about a career in surgery. Uh, time should never be an issue. Uh, I wish I'd spent the longest time doing more more training than uh, than being a consultant. Uh, the fun bit is in the training as opposed to being a consultant. Uh, uh, that's definitely true, I think. Okay, so uh, just before we finish, Rahul, uh, could you talk to the guys who are sort of listening, who again, medical students and, and junior doctors, how so if someone you know said that right well that sounds really interesting and i you know i've uh, i'd like to do research and i'd probably like to be an academic surgeon so could you talk us through uh, when you finished medical school what you did to get onto the sort of career pathway that you're on now so i was very lucky as i said uh, straight out of medical school i applied for an academic foundation position um to work at in the uh, department of surgery at imperial so so I, can i just stop yeah. you there? so this means that so you were you were in year five yep. you were applying for fy1 jobs yes and uh, you took the choice of actually rather than simply going for an fy1 normal position as it were you applied for an academic clinical fellowship is that right okay yep. because um of the two years of foundation training that gives you at least four months of academic time which is purely academic um, so that was that was great. And then from there, there's, there was a seamless transition to an academic clinical fellowship here in Southampton. And again, uh, that gave me a period of nine months um, during my ST1, two and three years. So I could choose when I took that nine month block. And that was crucial because uh, from the data I generated there, I could apply for uh, PhD funding. So just going back, so the normal career pathway is that you, you finish year five, assuming you pass your, your finals, you become an FY1. And most foundation year programs are now two years. So you do FY1, FY2. You then have to apply to core training, yes? Yes. Uh, and uh, in uh, in surgery, it tends to be core training tends to be two or three years. And then you apply to specialist training. So that's the ST level. Now, in your case, you applied from medical school for an 
Academic Clinical Fellowship, ACF. For academic Foundation Program. Sorry, first. Academic Foundation Program. And presumably this is something that would be sort of available to all our fifth years. Is that right? Absolutely. Right. And you get into that. And my understanding, sort of because we do have a few ACFs uh, with us in HPV, it is quite difficult to get that. You would normally need to be quite academically a high achiever at, at medical school, potentially? Yeah, so I think um, the thing is, uh, what I say is that you will only be competing against people, like-minded people. So I don't think it's so much about competition. It's about whether you have the research inclination at that stage. So there won't be that many of you. Right. And so the numbers, it, the, the ratios may not be that difficult, but you'll be competing with people who, who are all off that same inclination so it shouldn't phase people is what i'm trying to get at that people shouldn't say ah oh, that's beyond me if they have that interest they should apply right absolutely because the other thing is we talked about the academic foundation program the academic clinical fellowship but you can come into research at any point in your career um and uh, you know there, there's prime examples of people um the last winner of the Nobel Prize, Sir Peter Radcliffe, who's at the Francis Crick Institute, didn't do a lot of his research till after he'd finished his his training in renal medicine, and that's a prime example of that. And 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 he's a he was a professor in Oxford at the time, um, and a lot of it is to do with, like I said before, tailor making your training. So, if you get into one of these programs and you sail through it, go all along, and you come out the other end as an academic, that's great. Uh, the whole point of it was to make more academic clinicians. Uh, because there was a dearth of, of clinical academics, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but it's not for everyone. People come into it for at various different points from various different countries as well. So, um, you know, if you have the enthusiasm for research, I think it's all about mentorship, really. If you find the right supervisors uh, and the right mentors, uh, and, you know, they, sh they should be two different sets of people, um, then I think that you can achieve um, success in research at, at any different point that, at which you Want to come into okay so so that's interesting too so so people shouldn't feel that uh if they didn't make it onto an acf program that that potentially now they can't get a foot on the ladder is that right i think that's absolutely true um i think i think the the only thing that you need at you know to have to be a clinical academic is a higher degree so at some point you will need to do a higher degree now whether you do that at the beginning of your training or the end of your training they are pros and cons to both trust me uh, I've thought about it long and hard um, and I've gone about it by doing my PhD right at the beginning of my career straight after my ACF and then going into the lectureship but there's certainly you know uh, some disadvantages to that and on the flip side you have trainees who've been through their clinical training all the way to the end gone into research and then really loved it um, and then got academic posts at the end of that but there are disadvantages to that that as well um so you have to try and work out what's the right thing for you and research is always quite flexible and people are normally in academia willing to have keen trainees come to their labs and uh, they're not so worried about what level of training you are and they're always willing to train you up in in the research side of things so i found researchers and academics to be quite flexible in that regard Okay, so one is uh, junior doctors and trainees and medical students should be faced by the fact that if they've missed one aspect of how you can go about becoming an academic, uh, there is always doors open. So just to be clear, uh, you did your academic clinical foundation program 
followed by what then you you got yourself a so it's the academic foundation program which is the two years of the foundation program yes out of those two years i had four months of of academic yeah. time and then after that is the academic clinical fellowship and they're nihr funded right and they give you nine months of time yeah which you could take it at any time during the three years yes um the academic clinical fellowships are quite nice because they are linked to higher tri- higher surgical training um so you get a number at st1 level um and then you go straight into higher surgical training so you're not worried about uh, applying for your higher surgical training uh whilst you're doing your research okay so you you it's a run-through program basically. great so that basically means that how in no, in normal circumstances trainees have to effectively apply again to get to the next rung on the ladder you get to go straight through Correct. because you're doing this extra stuff Correct. okay yeah. and and once you finish this so you've got to, to this level you're a specialist registrar in colorectal surgery you're doing research where does this end well uh, I think the next thing is, you know, after you do your ACF, you do your, uh, you get some PhD funding or you get funded by someone who's generous enough, then you get your PhD and then you're eligible to apply for a clinical lectureship, for example. Um, the clinical lectureship is is brilliant because it gives you that flexibility, again, more protected time to then apply for grants, which will lead you towards research independence. And for clinicians, again, we're very lucky because we have grants that we can apply to which scientists can't apply to. So there'll be specialist uh, clinician scientist uh, fellowships and CRUK provides one, the MRC provides one, Wellcome provides uh, clinical fellowships as well. Uh, And so you won't necessarily be competing with scientists early on in your independent research career, uh, which will enable you to, to, to get on that first step of research independence. And then beyond that, uh, they're senior clinical fellowships from all of the funding bodies um, or tenured positions within the university. And I think that would be the aim of, of an academic. And again, we're very lucky as clinicians because there's always the flexibility to go back to a full-time uh, clinical NHS position. If it doesn't work out. If it doesn't work out. Good. Okay. So so that's fantastic. A really interesting sort of overview of why we should be sort of reading academic papers, but but actually... Almost, uh, I found your uh, academic stroke clinical journey uh, just as fascinating, I have to say. Um, could you, just so that um, the listeners know that you're human, could you just uh, just tell us what else you do in your spare time? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my spare time, I uh, do lots of arts and crafts with my seven-year-old. I uh, play football with my five-year-old. Uh, and uh, I'm also a keen cricketer, and I play cricket uh, as a playing member for the MCC. I play a little bit of violin with a string group in Livington, and I'm learning ancient Greek in the weekends. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's good to know. So, so you know, you can be a normal person as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Rahul, if, uh, if some of the medical students wanted to get some pointers from you, would you be happy for them to contact you? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to email me uh, through the university. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, that was brilliant. Thanks very much, Rahul. I enjoyed the humor. (laughs)